0: We are failing these kids. Other districts are opening now, full day. Um, I feel like the district has been making very informed decisions so far this year. Just where's the hope? I mean, you know, eventually life has to go on. Like everybody said, nothing is a zero risk activity. Life has to go on. I have an elementary schooler who is doing really well in the all virtual environment.
1: I see learning loss in my twins. I actually have to also deal with emotional issues for one of my kids who feels very alone. I wanted to just uh, say thank you for keeping our children safe, the staff safe. I do sometimes feel like the school district does pick and choose what they want to follow. You know, my sh- one child is currently on a quarantine for a bus exposure, um, but her bus driver is on quarantine.
0: Think it's tough being a parent in a pandemic? Try answering to thousands of them. Today, we'll ask New Jersey's top superintendent of schools how he's making hard decisions about opening and closing and opening and closing, and quarantines, curriculums, hybrid schedules. We'll find out what he's learned about learning and living from the coronavirus. Hi. I'm Kevin Coughlin for MorristownGreen.com. Thanks for tuning in. Mackie Pendergrast runs the Morris School District. That's 10 schools, 1,000 employees, and a diverse population of 5,700 kids from Morristown, Morris Township, and Morris Plains. Right before COVID-19 slammed everyone, Pendergrass' peers named him Superintendent of the Year. He had no idea how he was about to be tested. So, Mackie Pendergrass, thanks very much for joining us on the Morristown Green Podcast.
1: Thanks, Kevin. It's uh, I'm glad we have the opportunity to talk. Last year,
0: uh, your peers named you the top superintendent in the whole state of new jersey did um superintendent school teach you how to deal with a pandemic
1: no no but you know i have been through uh, a number of crises before uh, whether it was hurricane sandy and uh, s- similar types of things like that certainly nothing that could compare to this
0: It's early April, so we're just past about a year since everything turned upside down. Take us back to that weekend when you had to uh, pull the plug on school. What, What was that like?
1: We had actually been starting to follow coronavirus, I think, in early February. I think still not really believing that it could hit our shores or in, in such a dramatic way, but there were some early signals to that. You know, we saw schools close down in China and in Hong Kong, completely closed. And I think it was it was later than that. Japan closed all their schools, and that's when it I think started to really hit home. We started to get concerned. Just we with a lot of travel to Italy at that point, you may remember, it was a hot spot early on. As soon as I had heard that the governor was going to leave it open to the superintendents to make this decision. <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> yeah. Well, to tell you the truth, and I always tell people this, I had already made up my mind that if we got the opportunity to close, we would immediately close. Uh, just because that's how concerned I was about it. And we had actually been preparing for about a month. As soon as I heard the governor was going to let us make the decision, it took me about 10 seconds to make the decision. Uh, I made it immediately. I called everybody in the office and said, all right, let's go. And we just put everything in motion. What was it that
0: made you so certain that that was the move to make?
1: All the signs were there in Japan and in other parts of this country, I believe. I was watching the state of Washington very, very closely because he You may remember it hit there first. So there was a couple of schools out there I was watching very, very carefully. And uh, I think the bottom line is there was just so many unknowns with the coronavirus at that time that there was just too much at stake. I think you've got, what, 10 schools
0: and about 5,700 kids. And suddenly you have to flip the switch and go virtual. How prepared were you technologically
1: There's two ways of answering that. You know, one way is very prepared in in our middle school and high school because they had Chromebooks. We had been working as a district, making sure that everybody had Wi-Fi. we have been working on that for about four years. So from that sense, we were very prepared. Now, in our pre-K to five, the kids didn't have laptops. We could give about half of the students laptops that we had in our school buildings but so from, from that point, we weren't prepared at all. We had to do everything we could to get laptops out to as many kids as we could. We, we didn't have enough for all of our elementary kids. Do you have that now? We do, yeah. That's a different story. But we, our, our primary concern was, can everybody access the Internet? So some families you know, had to share a Chromebook. So we had two or three kids. Maybe in a family who had one device.
0: How many um, families did you have to provide Wi Fi to?
1: Originally, not too many, but because we had already been working on it. However, you know, the whole state, the whole country, the the demands on Wi Fi, it it became slow and spotty all around the country. And so then we also had a, a large number of our families in our school district, because of the economic crisis and all the restaurants shutting down and everything shutting down, you know, they lost jobs and they lost, uh, a lot of people lost where they were living. They had to go move in with relatives. They had to go to different places. So where we thought we were really well prepared in terms of Wi-Fi access, as the pandemic rolled on March into April and then to May, people were losing their Wi-Fi.
0: How did you actually roll out Wi-Fi to homes and neighborhoods?
1: At first, it was really just these little Wi-Fi units that you could stick into the computer. It's not perfect. It's not robust, but it was access. It was just one of about 100 things that we had to work through.
0: So it's a Friday, right, when you had to make the call, I believe? What's going through your mind at that point? This is like man the lifeboat. So what were you
1: feeling? At that very moment when I heard we could close schools, I was relieved because I was very scared for our students and for our families because of the coronavirus. It just seemed to me that it it was going to roll over us. And of course it did. Uh, But I, I was relieved that our families, our students could be safe. And then I just kind of had the mindset, we'll figure the rest out. It seems like it's a moving
0: target so much. I mean, just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen uh, the CDC say that now kids only have to be three feet apart, not six. We've seen that uh, the governor first came out and said uh, a couple weeks ago, there's going to be no virtual classes coming up this fall. But then he backtracked and and left it up to you, basically, to figure that out. Meanwhile, we see uh, restaurants, uh, capacities for indoor and outdoor events are being increased at the same time our transmission rates are among the highest in the country
1: i always tell people the one thing i know for sure is that when it comes to the coronavirus i don't know anything <laughs> and and there's and no and by the way no one else does and there's really no way to predict it i mean i think that's but that's a very important conclusion to reach nobody's been able to predict it so so recognizing very early that we're in for a long haul That does help you reach certain conclusions. You know, Kevin, to your point, uh, that has absolutely been one of the most frustrating things about this is the changing guidelines, the changing nature of it. Kind of early on in the summer, I remember very clearly thinking, well, we're kind of on our own. We have to double and triple down on our values, double and triple down on what we're trying to accomplish, and we just figure it out for ourselves.
0: The other day I was taking uh, a walk in my neighborhood, and I saw a lawn sign that was basically demanding that the district open up schools for full day schooling, uh, what, six hour schedule or whatever. There's been a lot of different opinions that we've heard from school board meetings from parents, so I'd like to, I'd like to tackle a few of these. Let's start with that one, uh, the full days of school. I know you've said many times that you feel that, uh, you know, everybody agrees, kids ought to be in school, but so far, they're shortened schedules. Why have you decided to stick with that?
1: It's really, from the very beginning, we outlined what's the most important thing this year. Well, the most important thing is that our our students are able to, A, come into school if, if they want to come into school, and B, that they have a continuity of learning, a continuity of instruction. But what you don't want to do is create a system that's going to collapse in on itself every single time transmission's go high right now new jersey last time i looked which was yesterday we were up over 1.1 in transmission rate numbers are skyrocketing in new jersey right now so
0: so a, a longer day
1: equals fragility in what way so if you're there a longer day if you're there at lunch and we can get into all you know the, those aspects of it there's greater possibility of, for the transmission but it's also it's your the biggest thing is your staffing And the operations of your buildings more and more that your teachers are exposed or there's transmission high in the community. uh, It just becomes more and more difficult to staff your buildings. You're bus getting bus drivers, uh, bus aides, teachers, teaching assistants, all the different, we have a thousand personnel. And so you need a thousand personnel to run, run the district. And, It becomes very, very fragile when there's high transmission, people have to quarantine. By the way, it's not my rules that they have to quarantine. Those are New Jersey Department of Health. When they're exposed, they have to quarantine. So it just becomes an operational challenge in terms of human operations as much as anything else to keep buildings open.
0: Having a shorter day lets you move around people as needed more easily.
1: We have a lot of substitutes. will come in for four hours, but they're not going to come in for six hours. We need those substitutes because so many people are quarantining. For us to open in September, which we did, uh, for our elementary schools, we opened five days a week. We were only one of 10% of the schools in New Jersey to open five days a week. In order to do that, we had to use all of our elementary CERT staff and spread the kids out six feet social distancing. And so that used up a lot of our staff for that function and which limited our ability in other ways so everything's a trade off and so the question is do you open up full day even though every single time coronavirus starts to rise in transmission rate it makes it more and more difficult for us to stay open
0: you've been pretty consistent in saying that um and and some parents disagree with you that there has not been significant learning loss from all this hybrid uh, action going back and forth. Just in the last few days, the uh, New Jersey Children's Foundation uh, released a study, and they looked at uh, kids in grades three through eight in New Jersey. Uh, They found that there was pretty significant learning loss because of the pandemic, and that it was even worse for black families, Latino families, and low-income families You know, at some of the the school board meetings, parents have asked to see the data to back up your uh, assertions that uh, there has not been a significant learning loss. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure. So, first of all, it's a mistake to say what's happening all throughout New Jersey is happening in the Morris School District uh, or Morris County, for that matter. Uh, There are very large school districts all throughout the state of New Jersey that have never opened or didn't open for five or six months. Camden and Newark and uh Trenton and Montclair and other places that that have been largely closed. So we've been open since September. That's important to point out. And uh our kids have had that consistency. We've had to close down a couple of times because we've had really incredible transmission uh within the community of coronavirus. We've had over four hundred cases in the Moore School District. Ourselves, which is one of the highest, I think, of any school district that I know of in New Jersey. Why is that, by the way? Well, again, I, I'm not a, a epidemiologist. You know, I'm not. I'm not an expert, but I think wherever you see that families live in uh, high density areas, and Morristown is a is a fantastic town, and you got people from all throughout the state who come to Morristown on a regular basis. So, I mean, it's a very popular town, and so you you get a lot of people coming in and out of Morristown. We've had incredibly low transmission within our school buildings, but our students and teachers and faculty uh, have been exposed to it and have uh, gotten—we've had a lot of cases— And that makes it very, very difficult. I
0: think that that that, that recent study surveyed about a dozen schools, and they did not say where those schools were. But Mm -hmm. uh, they found that in English, kids were only learning about 60-something percent compared to a normal year. And in math, it was a little Mm -hmm. worse. And again,
1: those numbers were worse for minority groups. What are the numbers telling you here? Well, in our elementary schools, when it comes to reading and writing, our kids are doing great. They, um, and we have the data on that. And early in the year, at one of the uh, earlier board meetings, I think in October, I shared some of the initial data uh, with the community. And we will be sharing out like the mid-year benchmark, uh, the next board meeting. We've always shared data. We've always been very public about it. The kids in reading and writing are doing great. And uh, in some in some of our classes, they're doing better than they have previously. And we commit the same amount of minutes towards reading, writing, and math in our elementary level as we have had in previous years. That's a, kind of a choice we made. We had to sacrifice uh, some other things to get to that point in math. It's a little bit lower uh, in terms of the mid-year point for, for about 9% of the kids in our elementary level, but we see that as uh, unconcerning at the moment because we're looking at those kids and we're seeing that they are growing. It's uh, We feel like with some consistency here in the second half of the year uh, that that they're right on track. So it's, it's not the large numbers that you're seeing, and we have that data. Really looking forward to sharing it out. Our, our kids are uh, reading and writing as much as they have in any other year. Now, that being said, this is a pandemic, and we know that there's a portion of our families that have been pretty uh, traumatically and dramatically impacted. We also know that this is having an impact on kids just from a mental health standpoint, school-related or not. So uh, we're not blind to the fact that adults and kids, families, faculty and staff, administrators, everybody, you know, pandemic has been difficult. So that's going to have some residue consequences to it. So we're being mindful of that. However, when it comes to learning uh, in ways that can be measured, especially as it relates to our elementary school, we have hard data on that. And really quite impressive data. So, you know, I I looked forward to continuing having that conversation. It's taken a million steps to put all the things in place so learning could be effective. And we've got another 10 weeks here where it looks like in New Jersey, uh, things are going to continue to get worse over the next month. So, our goal is to try to, I've said many, many times, I think you've heard me, is to bend, not break as a school district. So our students could have a continuity of learning and instruction.
0: Another uh, thing that I've heard uh, some parents raise—a concern that some of them raise—you uh, know, we were talking about staff a moment ago. There are some who feel that there's a, a bit of a double standard that they've been told over holidays that you know don't don't travel, don't take the family too far away, et cetera. And yet after this spring break, there's going to be uh, quarantines because of teachers, that that perhaps teachers aren't being asked to toe the line the same way that families have been. You know, I've heard anecdotally that kids on a bus had a quarantine, but their bus driver didn't. So how do you make these kind of calls uh, as far as your staff versus what you're asking of families?
1: Well, our staff are quarantining as well. And in the case of our bus, uh, for example, our bus driver is behind, you know, plexiglass and there's different protocols in place. So there are there are differences uh, as it relates to, for example, the bus. You know, our our staff are essential workers, they're quarantining as well. But it it certainly people have lives and some of our our faculty and staff, you know, they may have to go visit uh, a parent who's undergoing surgery. And they have to, you know, there are things people have got to do as families. So th- that's just part of life. And we've been at this for a year. So it, it's, it's certainly difficult with a thousand-person operation uh, during a pandemic to make sure that we can keep the whole system running smoothly. But we're just following the local health department's guidance. It's New Jersey Department of Health lays out the guidance, and we follow it. Um, so we, we continue to navigate all the nuances as best we can. Where
0: do you stand right now with vaccinations for teachers?
1: We're really grateful and thankful to uh, the Atlantic Health uh, Service that uh, they were able to get our, uh, our teachers Appointments, and we're looking at within a couple of weeks. We're looking at about eighty-five percent of our faculty and staff uh, having at least one shot. Most of them, two shots, and about ten percent of our staff, I think, who are not choosing. So we're so we're in a really good spot where we're looking at by the start of May, nearly all of our faculty and staff will be fully vaccinated. That means two weeks after the second shot. So far,
0: children are not being vaccinated, and that's still being studied. But uh, if it gets to the point where kids are going to be vaccinated, uh, would you require kids to have the vaccine to come to school?
1: You know, I haven't even considered that for a second or thought about it. Um, The data's not out yet. You have to wait till all the data comes out before you can make an informed decision.
0: We mentioned earlier how the governor has kind of thrown it back in your lap about providing virtual classes in the fall for those that have medical need will you be able to do that I mean uh, will you keep this
1: capability uh, at the ready <laughs> yeah that's one of the complications this year you know was was we had to do both and that becomes such a significant challenge for our teachers we have a dedicated virtual teacher at every single, grade level and every single school for the elementary, the hundreds and hundreds of students have benefited greatly from that. Who've have uh, real risk at home, uh, health risks. And so we were lucky to do that. The middle school and high school, that becomes impossible because of the depth of the curriculum and all the classes that you offer. But no, I, I there's, there's no way we're going to be able to do that in the same way next fall. So whatever virtual options will be available next year will look different than this year. If the vaccine's not effective against the variants, that's a different conversation. I'm not anticipating that. I I see it looking much differently next year. We're going to put all of our energy and attention to starting the year five days a week for everybody, full days, and using all of our our, uh, human resources to achieve that goal. If there are students who, you know, choose to, or have to be all virtual for some type of health reason, Then it'll look differently next year because we are putting all of our energy to make sure that that in-class experience is as optimal as it can be.
0: You're listening to the Morristown Green Podcast. Our guest is Mackie Pendergrast, superintendent of the Morris School District. When we come back, we'll hear what makes a great hybrid teacher. Here at Morristown Green, we're doing our best to help greater Morristown stay informed during these challenging times. We need your help. If you can, please make a contribution at morristowngreen.com slash donate. To become a sponsor of the Morristown Green podcast and reach a large audience within earshot of your business, drop me a line at morristowngreen at gmail.com. Or give a call at 973-944-0530. What have you learned over this last year about trying to keep young students engaged? You know, we've heard a lot from parents, um, you know, some parents saying that it's been really tough on their kids. Have you gotten any better at that? How, How do you keep them interested for, you know, three, four hours a day looking at a screen?
1: So first of all, I really want to make the point that I know if you if you just come to board meetings, you're hearing from one group of parents. Mm-hmm. But I hear from all of them. You know, we, we have 3,000 families. And the most dominant expression about the all-virtual program at the elementary level from the parents whose kids are in it is that it's been highly, highly effective for them. There are some kids who are doing really well in the virtual environment.
0: So so nobody's ha- really ever had to do this before, not on this scale, certainly. So what are the tricks that you have learned along the way uh, to try to make it work?
1: 1st I'll finish my first thought, which is there are kids who are doing really well in this environment, and there are kids who are really struggling in this environment. And we've always believed there needs to be kind of multiple pathways for kids. Kids learn in different ways, and we've always known that, and this has just kind of put a big exclamation point on that. Now, yeah, but some of the tricks, really the things that you need to do, it, it's in some ways not too different than what really makes a really great face-to-face in-person classroom work. You need, I think, and if you're in an all virtual environment, kids working in small groups, teachers connecting with kids in small groups is really one of the critical factors. Making sure that kids have access to high-quality digital platforms is, is critical, certainly, as well. But I think that it's that human connection that is so important, and that usually happens in small groups. If you have a child looking at a screen with 20 other kids for six hours a day, that's pretty rough. There's there, you, you don't want kids looking at a screen all day.
0: Have you been able to avoid that in, in all your classes?
1: Yeah, sure. But to answer your question, not to the degree that I would want it to be, I would want kids to do more work offline than we're kind of doing at the moment. And we we're obviously working at it with with 5,700 kids in this kind of crazy environment. And the, the ideal scenario is you, you want kids offline, off the computer. Um, if you can get a book in their hands, great. You know, and it's those types of things that we want to continue to try to work towards.
0: It would seem like it takes also some special skill sets for teachers to reach through that screen to connect. I don't know if that's been part of the curriculum you know in uh, in teaching colleges or not. Have you had to do special training sessions for teachers on on how to connect virtually?
1: You know we're iterating as as the years unfolding we're all we're all learning this no, this is not something. That teachers have learned in teacher preparation programs at the graduate level or in colleges. And so we're all kind of uh, learning together. And some of that early on was very, very much limited by, you know, uh, technology access and technology um, support systems. But now, since we've been able to largely get over that, a lot of this is pedagogical and instructional practice and technique.
0: So what does it take to be a a really good, effective teacher in this environment? What what kind of personality? What kind of approach?
1: Yeah, well, you have to be a learner, Kevin, first of all, right? You have to be um, just someone who's just really continually willing to learn and try new things and experiment. Uh, like any great teacher, if you had the kids all in front of you, you're going to learn from those students about what works for them, and you're going to adjust and you're going to keep adapting your practices to meet the needs of your kids. So that part hasn't changed. Our teachers, uh, you know, they're, they're under an incredible uh, difficult situation, and it's just really a lot of their sheer effort uh, that they've put forward here has led to, I think, some, some of the success that we've seen. So a teacher really, they've got to have those intangibles, just the the perseverance and resiliency just in an incredible environment. People forget, you know, they're, they're humans. They have lives. They've got kids. They've got parents. And they're putting in extra hours learning, extra hours figuring out what to do. That great, great lesson that a teacher had when they were in person doesn't always translate sometimes rarely does it translate into a, a all virtual world. So it's very challenging for our teachers.
0: So it's tough for the teachers. How do you think the federal government and the state have done through this whole pandemic?
1: In terms of the state, you know, with just the, the varying protocols and guidelines has made it a real challenge. I think that, uh, CARES money and federal government uh, monies that are coming uh, as a result of this will help us respond to it next year. And it has helped us this year as well, just in terms of, you know, we got a digital divide grant, which was able to bring in a lot of money to help us because we had to convert about three or $4 million in our budget to address some of the needs. We had to go out and get a couple of thousand Chromebooks for our kids, things like that cost us millions of dollars so in terms of getting some grant money uh that's helped a lot but to tell you the truth in terms of guidance uh we've just we just decided early on we have to figure this out on our own and not really we can't couldn't really depend on the state uh, or the federal government for too much guidance hmm
0: kind of a (laughs) lonesome Some place to be.
1: <laughs> well, I think again, if if you kind of go back to New Jersey, I mean, look look at all the different types of school districts you have in New Jersey. Look, I would I have done some things differently uh, if I was in their shoes. Yeah, I would. But I think that um, really we've always been focused on the needs of our community, and that's really where we need to be, and uh, the unique needs of of our kids. And it's much different uh, from one town to the next. So that that's really just where we've had to bend and, and focus on our community and our kids and our teachers and do everything we possibly can.
0: Of course, now Morristown, unlike most of the other communities in Morris County, has a very large immigrant population. What special challenges have you had uh, helping that community through this pandemic, technology-wise and, and otherwise?
1: Yeah, so just from the very beginning... Um, how big is that community? Can you define that for us? If you define immigrant uh, as families who've moved here or students who've moved here uh, from another country within the last three years, you know that that gives you kind of one set of numbers. If if you look at you know economically disadvantaged students in our school district, that number is between thirty five and forty percent. It could be higher. Kind of now with with the pandemic, it's hard to say, but it's right around that number. A lot of of our families in that group are immigrant. Before the pandemic, the immigrant population had tremendous needs. Everybody, I think, is very familiar with the challenges. A a lot of the families that have come into our district over the last couple of years, they spent time in detention centers. They've had had difficulties. They've, they've been exposed to, you know, separation of families and violence and all sorts of uh, economic distress and hardship. So those families pre-pandemic had tremendous needs. And with those physical needs comes a lot of uh, social and emotional needs as well. So when the pandemic hit, you know, Kevin, just just making sure that these families had food that's where we were starting from, and we've handed out in the last year we've handed out over four hundred thousand meals. And so, just starting with the most basic, is there food stability? Is there home stability? And a lot of times, people, when you when you like let's say look at test scores, you know, look at well, this group or that group is struggling a little bit. of the first questions we ask is not, are we teaching the right way? If it's an economically disadvantaged family in a public health crisis, our first questions are, are they living in a home that's stable or have they moved four times in the last year?
0: So you're really a social service
1: provider in addition to being an educational resource. Without a question, the kids are not going to learn well if there's distress in that household and they're not eating properly. You can't expect a child then to get online or to come to school uh, in a tough environment, and be able to focus and concentrate and learn on a high level unless those those immediate most basic needs are met and what percentage does not speak English as their primary language? speaking Spanish in the home that number is right around thirty five percent in the district. It might be a little bit higher, you know depending, but that's a little bit different than the inability to speak English, because that's not always the case. Those are, those are, the, that would be a little bit of an assumption.
0: So, have you been able to connect with these families virtually uh, in the same way that you have with uh, other segments of your
1: community? Yeah, we've, we've taken enormous uh, amount of energy and steps to make sure that everybody has a device and everybody has Wi Fi and internet access. We feel that we're right there, right around 99% to 100%, although there's always, again, economic distress and families moving around. So, you know, you can never always constantly get there. We spend a a tremendous amount of energy to make sure when we're doing, uh, you know, parent tech nights and different other types of support for parents that that we have translated into Spanish and that we have translators and we've Doubles our, you know, our our efforts for outreach to families who maybe don't speak English. So we we continue. To, of course, it's a struggle uh, during a public health crisis to communicate with families. Period. Uh, in a in a real meaningful way, but we've continued to make sure that we're having, you know, meetings virtually with families that our outreach. We're doubling down our effort to make connections with these families and call the families and to check on their circumstances to make sure we're meeting their needs.
0: In your gut, uh, what's your sense of when we'll be back to something that feels normal in the Morris School District?
1: Yeah, normal's a tricky word, Kevin, you know. (laughs) How do you define normal? What's normal to you? If, If you say, you know, normal is kids with smiles on their faces, that's happening right now. So if that's your definition of normal, to, to have greater stability, uh, so we're not worrying about schools shutting down, and we're not constantly shifting people around just to open up schools, and that's a whole different normal. So if we're not worried about contact tracing and all those types of things, all things being equal again, I'm not an expert. If the vaccines work like they say, then we really should be looking at, you know September being pretty normal in terms of uh, kids being able to come every single day, full day, in the classroom. They're probably, of course, they'll be wearing masks, and there will be some limits, right, of course, in things we do. For example, lunch won't look like lunch, probably. What's it going to look like, breakfast? Yeah, I mean, you know, we always think about lunch, you know, the kids can really hang out, and, and, you know, or in elementary school, you know, they're swapping desserts, right? And uh, they're laughing and having a lot of fun. Well, you know, lunch may not be that it looked the exact same way, but I I, th- I think in September, you know, just having all the kids back is gonna, you know, and and feel safe. It's not just have back, but but when the when the environment throughout the whole county and state is much safer environment, you know that that's going to be a big deal. But when it's normal, normal, I I really have no idea. Do you think the kids in the lower grades
0: are going to be able to make up uh, what they've lost in the special subjects? I know you had to sort of triage things in the lower grades, things like arts, music, gym, stuff like that. Will they be able to sort of catch up with those things?
1: Well, I think, you know, what does it mean to be caught up in art? Like, what's that mean? What's What's it mean to be caught up in phys ed? You know, like I, I think one of the playing the clarinet. Say, if you if you miss a year of that, that may take some catching up, right? Yeah, for music, uh, for sure. And and we can, you know, that's a kind of the easy one. I I think in terms of we can provide those supports and and uh, extra things there when it comes to music. What makes the arts so special, I think, is it's those opportunities for kids to to express themselves and to discover right things. So that that's what they they've kind of missed out on, which is which is really quite critical and important, right? It, in terms of ment- overall mental health, I, f- I feel really confident. We have such a strong science program, and we we have uh, so many great things in the district. I'm not really worried about uh, those things, quite frankly. I, I think one of the things that's that's the greatest about you know our middle school and high school, especially, and in our elementary schools as well. But are the extracurricular the the uh, all the different types of activities and clubs and things that are at their fingertips uh, they have access to but you know kevin you bring up a good point though just overall i think one of the things that coronavirus has really um kind of put us in the position which i'm happy about is what's the purpose of school what why are we doing all this what is the value of education what should we be focusing on I think coronavirus and the public health crisis has kind of put us in a position where we have to entertain that question in a new way, which I think is really healthy. What's the answer? The answer is is that we really need to focus, I think, especially in the middle school and the high school, on preparing kids for the world that they're going to enter, not the world that I entered after high school, but the world they're going to enter after high school. I think there needs to be greater shift and focus on kids being uh, exposure to careers and career thinking and uh, being prepared in those ways. I think we need to double down, make middle school and high school more relevant to our kids in those ways. And the world is changing so dramatically. I know we need more virologists for sure. Yeah, that's for sure. Right.
0: Do you think from all of this that there are components of virtual learning that you want to keep? For
1: sure. I I think just the concept of the flexibility of it. it could give our kids greater opportunities down the line. Now, what form will that look like? I'm not sure yet. But just the idea that a child, a student could take a class, you know, in this format and fulfill a requirement or just explore an interest that they haven't been able to explore before is really exciting. uh, I'm taking a class next week. I'm afforded that opportunity to go learn uh, from a class being taught by MIT professors on systems change. That's a great opportunity for me. Well, our our 12-year-olds should have the same type of opportunity. We can't offer everything to every child, um, but we can create those opportunities you've signed on for more zoom sessions. My goodness. (laughs) Well, it's asynchronous and that's okay for me. So
0: I want to go from macro to micro. This is the, um, the, what do you know section of our uh, podcast today? We talked about parents that have different viewpoints. You've had to make some tough decisions and knowing that a good chunk of your constituents are going to be mad at you. How do you make those decisions?
1: Well, to tell you the truth, it's the same way I made the decisions when I first became a superintendent you know, ten years ago, and it it really hasn't changed for me. And I don't uh, I don't make decisions by how many likes I'm going to get on Facebook, and that was true in 2012, and it's it's true in 2021. You make decisions based on your values, and you make decisions based on the the community's aspirations. And you make decisions on, based on what you, what you can do, what you're able to do. They're just limitations. It's, we're talking about a human endeavor here. So you, you make decisions through an empirical lens about what you can do, what's possible, what the evidence tells you. But you really, you make decisions on your values and the core values of the community. And that's always been my guide. Do you have a thick skin? Well, I, I kind of joke with people and say, you know, the the one gift God gave me was I uh, I have a thick skin. I guess is the way you just phrased it. I I'm okay with criticism. I guess I don't take it personally at all. I never have. After a uh,
0: a very long and tough meeting, school board meeting, said it goes on for three hours, and you know, there's some. Tough questions flying around from the public. You don't uh, tell your wife, I just want
1: to break this computer. <laughs> I can't stand it. No, <laughs> never, never, not once. No, it's, no. No, it, it's not. Um, I look at is the leadership position. My job as a superintendent is to elevate the understanding of the community, to try to help parents understand, give them insight into really the complicated operations of a school district and an unusual circumstance. Uh, I, I feel frustrated at times of my inability to communicate well enough about the complexities of what we're trying to do. But I never take anything personally. If for anybody who is impacted by those types of things, I would say don't become a superintendent. So it's just kind of the nature of the job. It's a leadership job. And if you're really uncomfortable, that type of thing, then it's, you know, there should be another job for you. But try I try to listen and learn from everybody, from our board members, from our parents, from our students, from our teachers. I'm constantly trying to learn from all the stakeholders to inform best practice. But no, I don't take it personally. Never have.
0: And just so listeners can be clear, I, I'm not being critical of parents at all. I, uh, yeah. I don't I don't know how parents deal with this. You know, it's got to be tremendously challenging. Yep. And so, um, you know, my, my hat's off to all of them.
1: Yeah, and I'm a parent as as well. Uh, I have a high schooler and a student in college, and this is extraordinarily difficult on our parents, uh, especially the parents with uh, elementary students. It's extraordinarily difficult uh, on the kids and on the teachers. This is tough for everyone. This is not easy on anybody.
0: Listening to the Morristown Green podcast. In our final segment called What Do You Know? Superintendent of the Year Mackie Pendergrass will tell us what he knows now that he didn't know before the pandemic. How do you define leader now? How and how has that definition changed over the last 12 months?
1: Yeah, that's a great, great question, Kevin. It really is. And I don't think my definition would change. Leadership to me is about – it's a process of really making sure that you're anchored in – I don't want to sound like a broken record, but you're really anchored in the highest aspirations, the the most clear-cut, clear, important uh, community values, and you put the steps and processes in place to actualize Uh, those aspirations. I mean, that's the job of the leader and it's extremely difficult in this environment. But to me, what, you know, this has done, is just, just to double down on the thinking about leadership that I've had previously.
0: You opened the schools in September when your teacher's union didn't want to, and you've got, you know, a segment of parents that wanted to see the whole thing opened up and you've got some other parents that want to see it basically closed down so doing what's
1: popular isn't always possible right if a leader is just looking at what's most popular then th- it's in my mind that's not a very effective leader you know if you're just going for popularity that that it, to me is the antithesis of leadership to me it's about raising the understanding of all parties involved and uh, your best leaders are going to be your best learners and uh, a leader's just got to continually learn from everybody. I will say this, our Teachers Association in the Moore School District has been fantastic. They've been phenomenal. Yes, we've had disagreements, and we've worked through those. It's a very professional dialogue that we have. And when I I came to them saying, look, we're going to be looking to bring all the kids back, you know, uh, in the fourth marking period... And we, we had those conversations. They were the first to say, yeah, we need those kids back. And I, I, I keep repeating, everybody everybody wants all the kids back. Our teachers do. Obviously, it needs to be safe. And looking at the current transmission rate in New Jersey, uh, it's pretty rough right now. We've talked quite a bit about values.
0: Uh, you've always been a big proponent of data. How how has data informed your decisions over this pandemic? Is it, has it helped, or is the personal touch more useful right now than the numbers?
1: It's all important. So the data has informed me a lot. And by the way, the data comes in different forms, right? Early on when, when our kids first came in, especially again at the elementary level, we conducted assessments to see if there was learning loss from the springtime. And we really didn't see that. So that that really informs me uh, quite a bit about going forward, the most recent data we've received that informs me that what we 're doing is working that's critical. Uh, if we got data that says, well, all these kids are behind by thirty or forty points or whatever that that you cited earlier that's how it would definitely definitely influence me quite dramatically about what we 're going to do in the springtime versus what we 're going to do in the summer, how we 're going to set up maybe next year.
0: and your background is also as a history teacher. And I'm really curious, are there any lessons from history that have guided you in any way? Any other periods in time that were similar to this that
1: you draw upon? Yeah, I think history, if if we do our job in teaching history, I think one of the things that have an understanding of history does for you is that you know it strengthens you. and when when you look back at time, there have been certainly tremendous challenges that our country has faced. And our our country has gotten through it and can come out on the other side of a tremendous challenge stronger. And so when we look at history, yeah, there have been other pandemics uh, in the course of history, and we've gotten through it. There have been other tremendous challenges and and the country the country has grown stronger. Is there any historical figure
0: that you look to for inspiration?
1: My goodness. A lot of them. I think just off the top of my head, though, you know, Dwight Eisenhower, he, to me, you know, he was an incredible planner. People, maybe the first thing you think about Dwight Eisenhower is not he was a planner, but he, this is a person as a general, you know, who had to really plan just such an intricate uh, invasion of Europe during World War II. And then when he became president, also using those same skills,
0: again, 12 months into a pandemic. What do you know now about poverty that you did not know before?
1: What I know about poverty is, was what I knew before, you know, poverty is the great disruptor in our nation. It's compounding. It's not like, uh, in, in terms of the, the things that someone who lives in poverty, the things that they have to face on a day to day basis And then with the pandemic, I think the the biggest thing that I've always known about poverty is just how fragile people who live in poverty, uh, their existence is. They're they're one incident away from losing their home or losing their ability to have a car, to put food on the table for their kids. So I've kind of always known that just based on my experiences in my own personal life and my experiences as a teacher— and a coach, and uh, in my position as a superintendent, What is coronavirus has highlighted is is just how difficult you know uh, people who live in poverty have it.
0: And this coronavirus c- crucible, what has it uh, what's it taught you about yourself? What have you learned about yourself that you didn't know before?
1: I've always placed tremendous value. In you know being part of the right community, and to me it's just you know made all kind of the difference in the world being part of the Moore school district, being part of the community because there's so many uh, just talented and people with uh, the purest intentions and the highest aspirations just really I find tremendous purpose and meaning uh, in my work and being part of this school community and That's something that I just believe at a deeper level now because of the public health crisis and just how important it is to be surrounded by the right people in a time of crisis. The other things I would say just is trusting your values. Those are things that I've had to personally double down on to be resilient enough uh, and strong enough to see the work through. Was there ever a
0: point during this whole thing where you? Had any doubt?
1: Yeah, very much so. And I think anybody who says otherwise is lying. Yeah, there were a lot of moments back, I would say, in May, June, and July. I did not see a way that we would be able to open school. I just did not think it could be possibly done. And then we just kind of made a decision in early August that we were going to do everything we can to put ourselves in a position to open and, and you had to just kind of jump off that mountain. You really had to take a leap of faith. And, uh, but yeah, a lot of doubts are for sure that you could do it, do it in a way that would protect everybody because simply we didn't know enough about coronavirus. But again, going back to the core values, we just strongly, strongly believe that the kids, especially our most marginalized and underserved uh uh citizens we just felt so strongly that we had to open up the schools or that there could be irreparable harm to uh to to some of our kids if we didn't open up the takeaway
0: that you'd like to give to the kids that you oversee
1: is what community counts <laughs> home counts the stronger your community is, then the the stronger all of us are. Mackie Pendergrast,
0: thank you so much for talking with us today.
1: Thank you, Kevin. It's been a pleasure.
0: Our thanks again to Mackie Pendergrast for being our guest. Thanks also to Morristown High alumnus Domenico Randazzo for the music on this episode check out his work at domenicosounds.com and thank you for listening from morristowngreen.com i'm kevin coglin we'll close in pandemic style from 2020's virtual commencement here's the morristown high alma mater it's sung by amelia colechia matt labelle and ann merritt from a safe distance Sure. Mm-hmm.